this morning we're going to begin an investigation into the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We're going to do a, a small five-part series, and we're going to be, uh, to begin our study this morning, we're going to make some preliminary remarks about the book of Genesis itself. We'll do some background into the book. We'll talk about issues and about some reasons for studying the book of Genesis. And we begin with our text for the morning, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we'll ask, what does that mean? When was that in the beginning? And an even better question, what is the purpose of the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And if we're candid and honest with ourselves, we would admit that we don't know when that was. We really don't. Some uh, conservative Christians say that the beginning was about 6,000 years ago. And some scientists say, well, that's probably not true. It, it probably took about uh, maybe millions of years, perhaps even billions of years. We just really don't know when that was. We have only vague ideas about when the beginning was but we really honestly don't know for sure. But there are some things that we do know. This opening phrase, in the beginning God, serves a very real purpose. In the first place, it represents a striking contrast between that which is human, that which is temporal, and that which is finite, and then on the other hand, that which is divine. It reminds us that we are humans and we have human limitations. And it points us to him alone who is eternal. It says that we are finite and that God is eternal. He is infinite. Then I ask, how do you measure infinity? How do you understand that which is timeless? Do you understand that which is timeless by talking about time? I'm not sure that makes any sense. For example, after the flood, we have archeological records that reveal certain details about peoples and their customs. We even have records of places, dates, and times. But that isn't so with the time before the flood. We simply don't know how much time passed between creation and the deluge, the flood. We don't know when the beginning was. Bishop Usher did his calculations, and he placed creation at 4004 B.C. But that date is, at best, an educated guess, and at worst, pure speculation. The sweet lady with the red books has placed the age of the earth at, quote unquote, about 6,000 years. 
But what does that mean? About 6,000 years. Is that 6,000? Is it 8,000? Is it 10,000? Maybe 15,000? What does about 6,000 years mean? In fact, that suggestion has recently come under fire. And in the second place, this tells us, the opening passage tells us, that God and nature are not one and the same. And by that we mean that God created nature, God existed before nature. In the beginning, God. He is the author of nature. He created nature. If we were to use scientific terms, we would call him the prime cause or the first cause. John says in John 1.3 that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Scientists make a mistake when they make God subservient to nature. But I've heard Christians, I've even heard some Adventists do the same thing. I've listened to them say that God is bound by the nature, by the laws of nature. He can do nothing that nature will not allow him to do. But I'm here to tell you that as creator, God is not subject to the laws of nature. If you believe that, if you believe that he is subject to the laws of nature, then you have a problem explaining the miracles that Jesus accomplished when he was here on this earth. And when he comes the second time, he's going to shatter every law of nature that you've ever heard about. God is the author of nature, and he is therefore above nature. He designed the laws of nature, and therefore natural law is subject to him and not the other way around. He is bound by no other law than the law of God in the beginning God, for God so loved the world. Now when we talk about the book of Genesis, you probably uh, need to know, if you don't already, that among scholars there is very much conflict surrounding the book. We're going to mention at least two instances where that is the case. One point of controversy concerns the author of the book. In the King James Version, the title that is given is the first book of Moses, but that title was added centuries later. The Hebrew title is simply the very first word of the book. It is the Hebrew word Bereshith, which means literally in the beginning. The Hebrew manuscript does not say who the author is. Jewish tradition, however, says that Moses, in fact, is the author of the book of Genesis. And Christianity has accepted that as fact. The question was never an issue until the middle of the 18th century. At that time, a Frenchman named Jean Astruc said that Moses did not write the book. 
He said that Genesis was nothing more nor less than a collected group of stories written by several different authors, and that Moses just put them together, edited them, and put his own name to the collection. Struke developed quite a plausible theory that many higher critics now take as, as fact, and it has become the prevailing teaching among those higher critics. But we have an answer for the higher critics, and it's a biblical answer. You see, everyone seems to be in agreement, even the uh, higher critics, they seem to be in, a, in agreement that whoever wrote Genesis also wrote the book of Exodus. And then all you have to do is read Mark 12, verse 26. And in Mark 12, verse 26, Jesus quotes a passage from Exodus and calls it the book of Moses. So Exodus is a book of Moses. And if Genesis and Exodus have the same author, and they do, and if Moses wrote Exodus, and he did, then the only conclusion that you can come to is that Moses also wrote the book of Genesis. The fact is that Jesus and the disciples often quoted from Genesis and considered it an accurate historical record. And those of us who accept the authority of my favorite author, we have added assurance. She says that Moses wrote the book of Genesis while he was in exile in Midian. She says further, here under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, Mo, uh, he wrote the book of Genesis. That would mean then that it was written about 1500 BC while Israel was still in Egyptian bondage. The question regarding the author of Genesis is one of the conflicts regarding this book. But far and away, the major focus of conflict centers around the issue of science versus revelation. Science slash evolution versus creation. And so we ask again, what does in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what does that mean? And let's begin answering that by giving you some background into this conflict, science, evolution, evolution, creation. Let's go back all the way to the 17th century. Back then it was believed that everything even the vital processes of plants and animals were carried out by God as magic. Life was a magical, mystical kind of thing that was under the control of God. And it was God alone who understood the processes that produced life and kept it going. This understanding of life was also the one being taught by the church at that time. And since the church operated the only schools in existence, it therefore was the only theory being taught, period. But this meant, you see, that you don't dare study any other theory of life, for if you did, you could very easily f bring upon yourself 
the wrath of the church. To believe anything contrary to what was being taught by the church, it could get you in desperate trouble, deep trouble, even get you excommunicated. In fact, Galileo found that out to be true when he taught a scientific con uh, when he taught a scientific theory contrary to the teachings of the church. Beside, since this was God's process, life and love and the process of, of living, since it was God's process, you couldn't understand it anyway because nobody can understand the workings of God. Only the church can tell you what that means. This notion carried the day until something came along to change it. In 1628, William Harvey made a discovery regarding the circulation of the blood. He discovered that there were physical laws involved in keeping man alive. He found that the blood was pumped through the body by the heart and that it was a purely mechanical process. It was neither mystical nor magical. And this really presented a dilemma. If, it's a if it is a mechanical process, then God may not be involved in it. If it is the heart that pumps blood, then God may not have anything to do with it. And if it's the heart that keeps us alive, then what part does God play in this process? And if that's true with our physical life, then how can God be involved with any other part of our life? What happened, you see, is that later on, men like uh, Johannes Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton, as they studied the laws of nature, they considered that they were, quote unquote, thinking God's thoughts after him. But it worked the other way also. As more and more scientists studied, they more and more came to the conclusion that the natural process of life excluded the need for a God because it was a peculiarly, it was a uh, exclusively a mechanical process. This excluded the need for a God. If life is me purely mechanical, then God can very, very easily be unnecessary. And through the centuries, the debate continued between science and religion until we have now gone clear to the other extreme. Originally, through the influence of the church, creationism was the only legitimate consideration. Today, however, the church has little, if any, influence on science, and evolution is now taught in the schools of the land. By the way, that ought to make a pretty good case for sending your children to Seventh-day Adventist schools. The teaching that the only rational explanation for the origin of man is evolution is now the common theory in schools and in science. Any other explanation is considered unenlightened at best and ignorant at worst. But I ask, 
why is it difficult to understand that God is reasonable and that he created a world that is, in fact, understandable? At any rate, the result is the present conflict that, that exists between evolution and natural process and the special creation, fiat creation, as outlined in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> and that conflict still exists today. Which brings us to the obvious question. Is it evolution or is it creation? Which is correct? How did this world and all of the things in it come into existence? A number of solutions have been proposed. Some scientists who are also Christians have a hard time accepting either the creation story or the account of evolution. They say that the scientific evidence isn't theological and that the theological evidence isn't scientific. So they have proposed their own theory, which blends the two. It's a theory called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution says that God created the world in the beginning. He set it into motion and then just walked away and left it to evolve by itself. This would mean then that the world probably wasn't made perfect as it's described in Genesis, if you accept that theory. This means also then that the days of Genesis 1 and 2 are not literal 24-hour days. Each day of Genesis 1 and 2 is a long, indefinite period of time. They could be a thousand years each, or they could be a million years each, maybe a billion. Nobody really knows for sure. But this is one solution to the problem that's been presented. And it is presented by Christian scientists. That is, scientists who are Christians. Most non-Christian scientists, scientists who are not Christians, accept the theory of evolution. They say that natural science proves evolution. Natural science proves evolution. I contend that science cannot invoke the natural to explain the unnatural. Therefore, I suggest that you cannot explain the origin of things by resorting to, to scientific evidence. Scientists can line up their evidence, but evidence is not proof. They say on the basis of evidence, evolution is no longer theory, evolution is now a proven fact, and that's accepted in most of the schools in our land. But evidence is not proof. Evidence is only evidence. The fact is that there's evidence against evolution as well as for it. You cannot prove evolution in a test tube. The only way to scientifically prove it would be to demonstrate it, to make it demonstrable, and that cannot be done. And so we, who believe in the creation story, we stand back and we say, those dumb scientists, all their scientific gobbledygook, I knew you couldn't prove evolution scientifically. But then I say to those uh, of us who are creationists, 
you can't prove the story of creation either. To prove it, you also would have to be able to demonstrate it, to see it happen right in front of your eyes. And you can't do that. All you can do is, like the scientists, all you can do is line up your evidence. But evidence isn't proof. And for all your evidence, the, sci the scientist has his own evidence to counterbalance it. In fact, much of the evidence is the same for both evolution and creation. The difference between the two is the way in which it is interpreted by one side or the other. But just as you can't prove evolution, you have a problem trying to prove creation. So we're going to come to a conclusion. So what's the answer? The answer is to realize that when you talk about origins or beginnings, you're talking about a matter of faith, not a matter of proof. To accept any philosophy, to accept any theory of the beginning of this world is to accept that theory exclusively by faith. And quite frankly, I believe that it takes a great deal more faith to accept the theory of evolution than it does to accept the account of creation. But it's still a matter of faith. And I have a text for you that says just that. It's Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are invisible. The King James Version says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. This is an important point. In fact, I believe it's an essential point. And it's essential for two reasons. Number one, the Bible is not just a history book. It is a book of redemptive history. Redemptive history. And my faith in inspiration and in the history of redemption and therefore in my own redemption is affected by what I believe in this matter. Which is simply to say, how is it possible for me to trust God to save me by faith if I do not have enough faith to believe the first four words of his book? How can I believe God if I can't believe in the beginning God? Paul says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And number two, faith ultimately deals with eternal realities. You see, my friends, if the philosophy of evolution is correct and man was not created in the image of his God, then man has battled his way upward through a succession of slimy, slimy scaly, and hairy creatures and has arrived at his present exalted position in the evolutionary chain carrying his animal ancestry with him. And he deserves a lot of praise because he's come a very long way. But in spite of how far he's come, note this, in spite of how far he's come, he still remains an animal. And he acts from animal instincts. 
and that releases him from responsibility for his animal behavior. For when he acts like an animal, he is only doing that which is natural for him to do. If, on the other hand, the story of creation is true, then the genealogy of our race traces it back to its beginning, not to a line of developing germs or mollusks or quadrupeds, but to a divine creator, God. And though formed from the dust of the ground, Adam was still, the little inspired lady says, Adam was still a son of God. Some have said in essence that they would rather be an exalted ape than a fallen man. But in this choice, they overlook the fact that Christ did not die to save a noble beast. He died rather to make possible the reinstatement of the fallen members of God's family, to restore them in the image of God in which they were created. There can be redemption only for that which has been forfeited. The sweet lady with deep spiritual insight makes this comment. To restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. And I'm here to tell you that if you're a child of God, you're not an animal. The Bible says, in fact, the man was created just a little lower than the angels. You see, for an evolved man, there's little hope of escaping the chains of his animal ancestry and beastly nature. His future attainments will be, by the very nature of his past, limited. But for every fallen man, who repents and accepts the plan of redemption, there shines the radiant hope of complete restoration, complete reinstatement into the household and the family of God as his child. And the God who was in the beginning is the God who will restore man to the image in which he was created. In the beginning. God. Father, we thank you that we are not just animals, made just a little lower than the angels, created perfectly by the hand of God. We are his children, and our hope is not to evolve to some very beautiful, ex exciting being that may never happen at all. If evolution takes billions of years, we'll never see it. But if we accept Jesus, if we accept God as our creator, we can see his work in us so that we can be restored to the image of God in which we are created as his children, the children of God. In Jesus' name.